So, I mean, everybody gets angry at work at some point, right? And one way that can manifest for some of us is with tears. Have you ever had something like that happen to you where you got angry and you started crying because of it? Why funny you should ask. (laughs) (laughs) This is Anne Creamer. She's a writer and researcher and author of the book, It's Always Personal, Emotion in the New Workplace. Mm -hmm. And the story she's about to tell is a story that led her to research emotions and work to begin with. In my last sort of corporate position, I was the executive vice president and worldwide creative director for um, Nickelodeon and Nick at Night. And in that capacity, I had done a gigantic deal with Sony Music. This deal was getting a ton of buzz. The Wall Street Journal and different trade publications had written about it. Anne was really proud, and so were the people on her team. And I was in my office celebrating this significant deal for our company and the telephone rang and uh, my assistant said oh it's uh, Sumner on line one and I thought oh my god Sumner Redstone he was the chairman of Viacom the parent company of my parent company of my parent company and I thought how awesome what what a what a cool boss this guy is to like (laughs) actually note this I love happy stories. Oh, Jeannie, my Jeannie. Um, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but um, this is a show about workplace sexism and there's no way this is a happy story. And this just vitriol starts spewing through my telephone receiver with him just shrieking and screaming at me about how the announcement of this deal had failed to move the Viacom share price. Mm, Wow. And you know, 90 seconds after he started shrieking at me, he slammed the phone down. And I, it, it, the, during the period of time he was shrieking at me, I wanted to sort of say, who, who, the, who do you think you are, old man? You know, uh, why are you screaming at me? But I couldn't say that because he ran and owned the company. Ugh. So I bottled it up as he screamed at me. He slams the phone down and I burst into tears. So Anne's boss clearly had no problem showing anger at work, and he wasn't worried about consequences. Right. But Anne was worried about the consequences if she showed anger in response to him. It's really confusing to know how to respond in the moment when a dude confidently unleashes his fury on you. Yes. And Anne says this tells us something about how anger works in the brain. It is this very deep and primal thing. And so the minute this guy started to scream at me, even though I wasn't, you know, on the savanna and he wasn't the lion, I was being threatened. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a threatening situation. Physical threat, no problem. You run or you attack. Mm-hmm. Cognitive threat, we're, we're all sort of, you know, fumfering around trying to figure out our ways of what's appropriate and how to respond and what's the correct level of response. And so it's really confusing and murky. And it's just a kind of chemical cocktail emotional mess. So we all feel anger. But why is it that some of us (laughs) women and people of color? Excuse me. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Why is it that women and people of color just straight up get in trouble at work more for showing anger? But other people white dudes, white, (laughs) excuse me. (laughs) Yes, white dudes don't. Sorry about that, you guys. I've got this bug going around, you know, structural oppression. This is Battle Tactics for your sexist workplace. I'm Eula Scott Bino. I'm Jeannie Yandel. And yes, your workplace is sexist. Even if everyone tries to leave their personal lives at the door. And even if your coworkers cry in front of each other all the time. We've been thinking about emotion and anger at work off and on all season. And then something happened that felt both infuriating and recognizable. Mm -hmm. It was when Serena Williams played Naomi Osaka at the U.S. Open. 
An umpire penalized Serena after she allegedly got help from her coach. I don't cheat. I didn't get coaching. How can you say that? Which made Serena angry. Then, during the game, she threw down her racket, and then the umpire took a point from her. Code violation, racket abuse. Point penalty, Mrs. Williams. Then she yelled at the umpire. She called him a thief. And he gave her a third violation, a game penalty. Now, a lot of us saw something familiar in that. A woman was being penalized for showing anger at work. And Ann Creamer says this incident speaks to a bigger problem. Nobody's really bothered to revisit whether our norms around work, all business, you know, no personal are realistic in the modern workplace. Yes, but spoiler alert, they never have been. Emotion is integral to every single decision a human being makes during the course of their day, from what you wear to work in the morning to how you're going to handle a presentation to, you know, what you're going to do in terms of a performance evaluation with an employee at some point. So this idea that emotion is separate from a workplace environment is completely specious. We can't do anything without our emotions. We can't even get dressed without them. But that doesn't mean we all process emotions in the exact same way. Our tear ducts are anatomically different than men's tear ducts, so men's are much larger than ours. So a guy and I might be feeling the exact same degree of emotional distress, but his tears will just sort of well up in the bottom of his eye. A woman, because her tear ducts are smaller, will have her tears sort of spill over and go down her face, and she'll look much more emotionally volatile than the man is, but she's not. Uh, It's just that that her body is structured differently, and so these tears fall out. Okay, wait. We have to stop for a second to make sure everybody got that. Mm -hmm. Women have smaller tear ducts than men. (laughs) We literally have less tear storage. Everybody tears up, and some of us have a place to store those tears, and some of us don't. It's just so good. I mean, every time I cry from now on, I'm going to repeat, I have very small tear ducts, so I can't (laughs) hold on to these. (laughs) Got to make room. Go in peace. Thanks. (laughs) Bye, tears. I mean, it's really, it's it just, all this stuff just staggered me with how clueless we all are as we, you know, launch ourselves into our public careers, you know, knowing nothing about how our bodies work and, you know, how to kind of think about workplace norms and how they're evolving and how they should evolve. Is, it, is there any harm, though, in holding back our emotions, like if we're holding it in tears and things like that? Huh. So if you are constantly bottling up and holding your emotions in, I think you're pretty much like a, you know, pressure cooker. There is something you will become brittle, uh, you know, stress and that kind of stress of acting differently um, sort of erodes your self-control uh, function so that the smaller things will actually be kind of triggers for outbursts. Uh, so that I think there is danger in learning not how to productively communicate the issues that are going on. I, I would hope that if someone cries at work that a uh, boss or the, the person who actually cries, instead of feeling ashamed about the moment, says this is like a you know check engine light on the dashboard situation. Mm-hmm. It's a, huh, so I'm, this is valuable information. I am, I am finding out right now because of these tears, I am not feeling valued. I'm feeling overwhelmed. Somebody else is taking credit for my work. There's been a bully who's been, you know, abusing me. There's a lot of data you can you can find out about um, a particular problem 
if you choose to not view it in a negative light, but as a kind of learning uh, opportunity. What does the research tell us about what kind of penalties women can pay for displaying emotion at work? Well, there's a terrific researcher at Yale named Victoria Breskel who's done a lot of uh, research into anger at work. And what, what she has discovered is that when women express anger at work, their status is always diminished. Mm. No matter where they are in the hierarchy, it is diminished. When a man expresses anger at work, his status increases. No. Because when a man will get angry at work and scream, it looks like he's being masterful and in control and, you know, showing people what's what and my road or the high road kind of thing. Clear leadership capabilities, really understands, you know, what they're looking for. When a woman does it, she looks emotionally volatile. She's labeled, uh, you know, as we all know, the word that rhymes with witch. (laughs) And she is viewed in a completely negative light. There's a double standard when it comes to how men are perceived after expressing emotion and how women are perceived. You don't say sexism. (laughs) Sorry. So the thing is, a lot of women already know this, too. Nine out of ten times, women will say, I don't want to be seen as emotional if I express the way that I feel about a decision. Mm. Right. Because I don't want to be punished. This is Cheryl Ingram. Cheryl's a diversity, equity and inclusion training specialist and the founder of Inclusology, an organization that studies how inclusion happens at work. And that statistic is from surveys her organization conducts on diversity and inclusion. Right. Cheryl's job is to go into workplaces and help everyone there figure out how to uncover their own biases. And that's really important because biases can shape the way we respond when our coworkers express anger and whether those coworkers get penalized. Which brings us back to Serena Williams at the U.S. Open. It triggered me when I saw it because of the work that I do. It made me think about how unacceptable it is for women to what we say emotionally react um, in situations at work and how we are penalized for that. And I was just furious. And then the furious turned into sadness for the fact that this that referee was in a position of power to impact her legacy. So Carlos Ramos is the umpire and he has been widely criticized for his handling of that match, as I think he should be. So um, what do you think he missed in that? I think he missed his own bias. Mm-hmm. Right. The And the way, reason I say that is because I was looking at follow ups from other male tennis players that said, I've said way worse things to a ref. Right. And they've never taken a game away from me. Right. right. And so I was like, I wonder if he even after the fact took the time to evaluate how his bias might have played a role in that. Right. And that's an assumption that I was thinking of because I was like, I think that he missed that. And I think that he missed bias according to a number of different identities that could have existed, whether it was gender, whether it was race, whether it was age, I mean, et cetera. But something there was a lack of awareness somewhere in how he made that decision. That's such an interesting thing to think about is whether he spent any time interrogating his own bias afterwards yeah. of like why he would call that shot on someone who he yep. wouldn't typically call that on. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Mm, I'm sure he didn't. I shouldn't say I'm sure. I don't know him personally. Carlos, we're not friends. Right. Yeah, Carlos. <laughs> but you, And, you know, I'm sure lots of people looked at that and our identities were immediately at play. Right. There was different intersections that existed within that. So many assumptions that we make that we can only come to a conclusion on compared to what we've seen happen in other places in that sport. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like. So amazing to me, even the issue of cross-cultural communication and how we accept what is or how we create what is acceptable in the way that mm-hmm. we speak to one another. and Who gets to say what to who yeah. without consequence, you know? Right. Wow, that's so, interesting. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So speaking of that, like in terms of 
cross-sectional. You mean you're a black woman. You probably have a lot of cross-sectional conversations all the time. So what parallels do you see between what happened with Serena at the U.S. Open and what black women have to deal with when they show emotions at their jobs? Oh, I see so many parallels. I think that one is definitely consequence for not meeting what we would consider a very white normative culture in the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's even this westernized idea of what it means to as acceptable expression in the workplace. And so if you are a very passionate person or culturally, the communities and environments you have grown up in express themselves differently, both verbal and nonverbal. Right. You can be punished for that. And we've seen that happen to women in the workplace. If I yell at someone that might change the dynamic in the room as opposed to if a man yells at someone because of what is more acceptable. Right. If I'm screaming or I'm going off, it's because I'm a bitch Mm. or I don't have high emotional intelligence. But if a man does it, it's because he's authoritative. And we see black women in the workplace specifically getting punished more so than men, even than black men, even than white women. Sometimes in the way that they express themselves in the workplace. So before we started talking about Serena Williams at the U.S. Open, we all kind of took a deep breath. By contrast, we have someone else in a workplace scenario displaying anger. What dynamics did you see at play there when Brett Kavanaugh was expressing anger during those hearings? There were so many different dynamics. I actually just recently wrote a blog about one of them. Um, And I talked about empathy versus sympathy. And how human beings are more likely to identify and justify people who have common identities as them and express more empathy and sympathy for that person. And so I saw these things at play when there was this issue of not believing Dr. Ford and her testimony. There was these issues of even our president justifying the emotional the emotional presentation of this person, Brett Kavanaugh. And so, I mean, there was just so many different dismissive and heartbreaking dynamics at play when it came to how we accepted and justified his emotional expression. And it was like the fact that he explained those emotions meant that he was passionate about the job. Hmm. Right. And he was fighting for his rights and his advocacy. But when Serena does the exact same thing. Right. It's punishment. So, Cheryl, part of your job is to go into workplaces and talk about biases like racism or sexism and how that affects people. When you're talking about things like, you know, racism or sexism, do emotions come up? They're going to come up, right? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, no emotions. That's that's, that's, (laughs) totally emotionless. Training is the hardest part of our job. And part of the reason is because of that. We're talking about topics that are very near and dear to people's hearts and challenging them in ways sometimes that they've never had to think about. Right. And so we see people get angry. We see people cry. Sometimes we see people just shut down and we do a lot to try to minimize that from happening and to create spaces. Even when we preface the training to prepare people for what they're about to encounter. Um, So we've had to get very strategic about scaffolding the way that emotions might show up in that space and how to create acceptability around that. What does that mean, scaffolding? So scaffolding means that we take like layers at a time to address how resistance might show up. Mm. So, for example, at the beginning of a training, we have a slide that talks about here's how we witness resistance show up. This is normal. Right. So we try to normalize it so that people actually do express it because that's how you learn and grow is when you create some sort of awareness around the fact that, hey, I'm upset, you know, or I'm pissed off about the fact that you said that. Mm -hmm. It's like, let's talk about that. I feel like we covered this a little bit, but. Based on what you know, what you've seen in workplaces, your trainings, what you've experienced yourself, like, 
Who gets to show emotion at work without penalty and who doesn't? Okay. <laughs> this is a heavy, this is a, um, I think that we need to highlight the fact that it's not even the space of what is allowed, but what follows after it happens. Yes. Mm. Right. Cause you could be allowed to scream and people make you think that that's okay. Yeah. And then you go to a performance evaluation or you don't get put on a big project. Right. Right. So it's like the allowance of it happening in the moment, but what is the consequence or the follow-up of due to acceptability mm-hmm. or lack thereof? Right. Because people in the moment will just shut down, get quiet. And then, you know, I don't know. She got real passionate the other day. She does not deserve to be here. Yes. Right. And then you are that boss where you go to assign projects to your team and you're like, oh, but Caroline screamed in the meeting the other day. Caroline. I don't I don't know how responsible she is or if she can handle this big project. Right. Right. And so you think in the moment you've accepted it and created an inclusion when it comes to designation of responsibility, it shows up differently. It shows up differently. There's another study looking at women of color in STEM fields, and nearly half of them reported experiencing some kind of backlash for expressing anger at work. That thing Cheryl talked about, maybe she can't handle a promotion or more responsibility because she yelled that one time. The research shows that backlash is a lot less likely to happen to white men when they yell at work. Now, this isn't to say we want a workplace where it's okay for people to just yell all the time. I mean, it turns out that's a really toxic workplace, too. (laughs) But I feel like both Cheryl and Anne argue that we're all misguided if we think when it comes to emotion at work, we can either only be emotionless robots or exhausted yell-sobbing toddlers. I I, honestly, I don't want to work at either of those places. Hell no. But there's definitely a healthy, you know, non-yelly, non-sobby middle ground we can get to. And now we get to talk about how to get there. It's time for tactics right after the break. Oh, I'm going to get emotional because it's my favorite part of the show. (laughs) Oh, it's time to get tactical. I'm already excited to share more of Anne and Cheryl's genius. But first, you know, so how are you feeling about all these emotions, Jeannie? Honestly, I'm feeling relieved. Mm -hmm. I mean, as somebody who has cried in a bunch of different corners of KUOW, which I'll show you some of those later, by the way, it's actually really validating to hear that emotions can't just be checked at the door. And like, I haven't been doing this wrong the whole time. At all. Mm -mm -mm -mm. But Anne says one thing that helps when emotions sneak up on you is pretty simple. Get up and get a glass of water. By walking away, by getting a drink of water, you allow yourself to kind of calm down. You can kind of think through a few scenarios for how you might address whatever had come up. And then you can go back in and with with far more kind of grounding and, you know, measured thought processes, address what was going on. Oh, I love that tactic. You know, it's honestly the only tactic my mom really ever gave me for emotions, you know, besides don't have them. Right. (laughs) Um, Did you know it's actually impossible to cry and drink at the same time? No, I did not know that. I've known that my whole life. It turns out, though, a snack can help with this, too. Okay, this blew my mind. Anne explained that every decision we make lowers our glucose levels, making it harder to make decisions and easier to get agitated doesn't have to be the apple and the cheese thing necessarily to kind of sustain you over a long period of time. You just want to get that sugar level back up in your brain so that if you have to make a complicated decision, you actually have the bandwidth within there to be able to process it. Remember how Anne described crying as like a check engine light coming on, a signal that there's something that needs attention? Cheryl says we need regular maintenance, including when we're not at work. There's a lot of self-care that has to go into it, Mm. right? So whether you do that through meditation, whether you do that going through the gym, you have a circle of friends that you talk to about how you are expressing yourself, find your outlet. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's going to take a lot of work on all of our parts to get to a place where it's acceptable to do that in the workplace. Yeah. So your responsibility is not about making your workplace do it. It's about taking care of yourself until some change happens. So that's some stuff we can do for ourselves. But there's also stuff we can do when we see a coworker lose their cool. Let's let Cheryl take it from here. If you are someone who cares about your coworker and you want to follow up and create a space, you can first ask permission don't just go up to a person and be like, you blew up the other day. I have some feedback for you. Right? <laughs> right, right. Because I can if you're going so well. Right. right. And, and the feedback can become overload because if you're on a team of seven people and they all got some shit to say to you about how you mm. should behave, that can go into overkill real fast. Oh, my God. Right. So it's about being mindful and asking someone if you can create a space to take them to coffee, take them to tea, sit down with them at lunch and ask just how's your day going? What's your experience been like at work? Right. I noticed that you had a moment at work where you lost your shit. Is there something that I can do to support you so that that doesn't happen again? A lot of our tactics so far have been about us better managing our emotions, you know, supporting our coworkers. But none of that really solves the bigger problem here, that some of us still get penalized when we're perceived as emotional by our bosses. Right. So this next tactic is for managers and bosses. Listen up. Anyone who gives performance evaluations. You guys. Cheryl says that's the place where these biases against emotion often show up and where penalties can be doled out too. Often when we see biases toward emotions, they're in your performance evaluations, right? So if you have a bias for emotional intelligence and how that shows up in the workplace, you should probably start to take those out or reevaluate it so that it's more equitable for different identities. If you're evaluating a woman or a person of color on how you perceive their emotional responses using words like intimidating or over-emotional, that's a clue that perhaps you need to look at your own biases. Right. Please do. Because you need to be talking about their work and not the way you perceive their emotional responses. Cheryl has another tactic for managers and bosses to use, too. This one HR can help with. You also need to reevaluate your non-discrimination policies, your grievance policies, because Co-workers tend to report one another, mm. right? And often when emotion shows up, et cetera. Mm. And in your grievance policies, look for patterns based on emotions and then break those down according to identity because you want to see who is being reported and punished for what. And Ann Creamer says, bosses, workplaces, you all stand to benefit if you can create acceptance for everyone to display emotion at work. There have been several studies that have looked at the value of uh, showing compassion and empathy in workplace environments. Now, one, you know, not particularly surprising one was with nurses, and they showed that when nurses were more empathetic to their patients, the patients spent less time in the ICU, they left the hospital more frequently, they had better outcomes from their surgical procedures. So it was much more profitable for an operate, you know, organization like a hospital to train, have active training and empathy for caregivers. But they also did the same thing with factory workers. And they found that when they trained factory workers to be more empathetic and compassionate with their fellow employees, there was less absenteeism, there was greater productivity. Is it just me or do our tactics often lead to better outcomes for employers? Seriously, right? Yeah. Oh, and that brings me to this episode's merit badge. So it's our check engine light badge. Yay! Mm -hmm. Because we need to check why we're having an emotional response to something. But we also really need to check our responses to other people's emotions. So 
If you use any of the tactics in this episode, tell us about it. Email us at btsw at kuow.org or post in our Facebook group or tweet us or tag us on Instagram. These are all the ways to get in touch with us. And we will send you our digital check engine light badge. And if you're feeling emotional about our show, you know, like the way I am right now, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to get the word out. Yes. In this long uphill battle to fight sexism at work, if I pull my load, will you pull yours? Always. I appreciate you. Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace is a production of KUOW in Seattle. This episode was produced by Kyle Norris, who has such an NPR name. Mm-hmm. Edited by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. I really appreciate you not getting too emotional when I told you, you know, the truth about in and out <laughs> And special thanks to Jim Gates. Our managing producer is Brendan Sweeney. This podcast was inspired by the book Feminist Fight Club, written by Jessica Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Kessia Gordon. I'm Jeannie Yandel. I'm Eula Scott Bino. Keep up the good fight. So thank you for coming in here. Yeah. I just wanted to show you this studio. Yeah. Is I've one been of here the before. Yeah. This is also one of the rooms where I've laid down on the floor and cried at Another KOW. One? I know. I've been here for a long time. Man. <laughs>